We're in a summer series entitled 12 Words of Hope for the World, for the whole world, for everything you've seen on the news this week, for all the good, the bad, the ugly, 12 words of hope the church has in its vault that we share with people who may be Christians, may not be Christians. But these words belong to us, they belong to the world, and we cling to these words. Today the word is neighbor. In the story in Luke, chapter 10, 25 through 37. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, well, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and when I come back I will repay you whatever you spent. Now which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Now, when I was a child, like you told this story to the children this morning, I thought this story was about helping people who were beaten up on the side of the road. And then I later found out that there is an adult version of this parable. So if you're under 21 years old, you're going to have to leave church right now. Jesus, let me remind us that Jesus tells this parable to a Jewish 
lawyer, who would ask him the question, how might I inherit eternal life? And Jesus flips back to the lawyer and says, well, you're a lawyer. What does it say in the law? And he answers, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus says, that's right. Do that and you'll live. But being a lawyer, he had to ask one more question. And so he said, who is my neighbor? Now hang on to that question. Because that's going to get us to the adult version of this parable. So Jesus makes up this little story. This story never happened. About a nameless person who was beaten and robbed on the side of the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, that would have happened all the time. If you traveled by yourself in those days, it was very, very dangerous. People traveled in caravans. And coming down from the mountain of Jerusalem to Jericho... Uh, There would have been robbers on the road all the time. So the listeners understood Jesus' parable. They knew this happens. And so Jesus has a priest and a Levite who is like a temple assistant. They both pass by this wounded man and offer him no help. Now Jesus makes this up. These are the religious guys who you would expect to stop, but they don't. Now, they could have been Presbyterians today, but Presbyterians would have had to have a committee meeting to study roadside assistance. And we would have done that for a year or two, and then that guy would have died. But the point is, Jesus has religious people doing nothing. That's a key to this parable. They're of no help. And there's plenty of times I don't stop. I don't know about you, but someone has broken down on the side of the road. I saw three, four, maybe five cars yesterday from Brevard to Richmond on the side of the road. I didn't stop. Could be a trick. Somebody could be hiding in the woods, put out a helpless woman on the street, you know, looking like, oh, I need to stop for her. And then somebody come out of the woods. You know, it's a dangerous world. And they probably have a cell phone, so they can call AAA. Um, and besides that, I'm going 80 mi- I mean, 70 miles an hour. And by the time I've thought about all that, I've already passed them, can't go to the next exit, flip around. You know, um, it, it's already over. I don't stop. And then there's all the people at every intersection in Richmond, Virginia, begging for change. Have you happened to see them? They catch you at a red light. And I don't, you know, I pull up and I go, oh no, (laughs) don't make eye contact. Don't roll down the window. Act like you're talking on the phone. Um, Create a job here in your car that you're (laughs) you're working on so you don't have to deal with that awkwardness of that person standing there looking at you like, are you going to give me anything? I can't give out money at every single intersection in this city every single day. I mean, I could do it on Monday, but then there's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Besides that, it's probably a scam, right? 
It should be against the law, actually. And, and come on, light, hurry up, change. Get me out of this situation. I don't stop. So what are we supposed to do? Is, is Jesus saying this? Is he saying that helping strangers is how we inherit eternal life? Is that what this means? And if it does mean that, a bunch of us are going to come up short, including me. See, the key to this little parable is actually in the word Samaritan. Jesus intentionally chooses the Samaritan to be the one who stops, takes pity, bandages the beaten man's wounds, and carries him to an inn and takes care of him. And not only that, but he pays the innkeeper for anything else that, that may occur. So here's the question. Why did Jesus have a priest and a Levite pass and do nothing? But why did he choose a Samaritan? Why a Samaritan? Here's the rub. Hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans was intense and long-standing, and that Jewish lawyer would have known about that hate. And so for Jesus to make a Samaritan the hero of the story is an oxymoron for that Jewish lawyer. There is no such thing for a Jewish lawyer as a good Samaritan. That can't be. And this dispute went back, by the way, as far as 700 years before Christ. So that's a lot of hate. What happened back there 700 years ago that would create such a hate between Jews and Samaritans in Jesus' day? Well, here's an Old Testament two-minute drill. It starts with Israel being God's chosen people, the covenant with Abraham and Sarah in chapter 12 of Genesis. God chooses a people, two old people, too old to have a baby, and, and, and mysteriously and magically, Sarah has a child. That child creates a nation. Twelve sons all their families, all the grandchildren, they grow, they end up years later as slaves in Egypt. The chosen people, over 400 years, they're slaves in Egypt. When Moses comes along and God calls him to free the people, they leave and go into the wilderness for some 40 years. It's a long time in the wilderness. No food, no lights, no transportation, no sanitation. No map, no GPS. They're in the wilderness. They go into the, what has, we call the promised land and they have to fight battles to get in there because there are people already in there. It's not like it's just sitting there waiting for them. So they have the conquest. They fight these battles and set themselves up in 12 tribes and they fight more battles. And they're longing to be a bona fide nation just like everybody else. God promised it to Abraham and Sarah many, many, many years ago, we would be a great nation in a land of our own. So far, all they are are nomads, ex-slaves in tribes 
camped out in the promised land. There comes a day when they call for a king. They want a king like everybody else. They want a president. And so they beg God for this king and they get one. Contrary to God's desire, God says, I'll get you want a king, I'll give you a king. They get Saul. After Saul, they get the greatest king Israel ever knew. David. David. David is the golden boy. He's the years of of Israel becoming all that God promised. And so they they get Jerusalem. They get get the walls. They get the band. They get a bank. They, 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 They are successful in war. They're everything that they thought God had promised to them. And then Solomon, his son, who is also the son of Bathsheba, by the way, one of the greatest grace stories in the entire Bible. Solomon builds the holy temple. The son of Bathsheba. He builds the holy temple for the dwelling place of God. I don't know if you'll find any more forgiveness in the Bible than that story other than the cross and the resurrection. But then, because we're all human, we messed up a good thing. So in the year 930 B.C., 930 years before Christ, Israel split in half. The northern part, which is up around the Sea of Galilee, on your map, kept the name Israel. The southern part, down around Jerusalem, the capital city, was called Judah. And there were too many kings to count on both uh, north and south, and too many conflicts. CNN and Fox would have covered this day and night. It was uh, like a soap opera in the Bible. You can't keep up with it. And in the year 722 B.C., About over 200 years after the split, Assyria, an empire, rises up and conquers the north. They take Israel. Now, Assyria is... Now, I'm going to get back to the Good Samaritan. Hang on. Assyria had a strategy that when we conquered your land, we took your people out, put them in exile, and we brought plants in. We brought... Uh, people from other nations from around you in and put them in place to do the work. Why? Because we don't want anybody feeling loyal, angry, mean-spirited in this country. So we're going to take you out and put uh, other people in your country. And that's what they did. And over a hundred years later, from that day, the southern kingdom, Judah, fell to Babylon. People were also taken out, put in exile. Some people left to do the labor, but many colonists came in from other places. But 70 years later, after the South fell, you still with me? The South falls. 70 years later, they returned from exile. Well, the first thing you want to do if you're Jewish people and you've been in exile 70 years, which, by the way, most of the people who went into exile probably died. These are new people. So when they come back, the first thing they want to do is reestablish 
their religion. And this time they want to be faithful because they, they have determined that the reason we were exiled is because we were unfaithful. So when they come back, they are jacked up to be extremely faithful people. And they're going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But the Jews to the north, their capital city was Samaria. They had integrated with non-Jewish people. They had intermarried. They had lost their cleanliness, their boundaries. They built another temple, not Jerusalem, not the real temple, but they built another temple. They mixed religions with pagan gods. And the people in the north saw themselves as the true Israel, but the people in the south who were coming back to restore the temple saw the people in the north as imposters, thieves, trying to steal the birthright that goes all the way back to Abraham and Sarah, goes back through the wilderness, goes back through the slavery, goes back through my great, 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 great grandfather. And you dare to claim a right to all of that when you have mixed up Judaism with all these pagan gods and trying to steal our religion. No, no, no. The southern Jews saw the northern Jews as imposters or another word for that. Samaritans. Oh, this Jewish lawyer Jesus is talking to. He knew that story I just told you. He knew who a Samaritan was. And this hatred was fed and watered for centuries up to the time of Christ. That's a long time to hate somebody. Now, if Jesus were telling this little story to a southern lawyer in Richmond, Virginia, in the year 1866, you know what year that was? The first year after the Civil War. And if Jesus were up here at the courthouse and... A Jewish lawyer came to him and said, well, who is my neighbor? My guess is Jesus would have made up a little story and a union soldier would have been the hero who bandages up the guy when all the southerners passed by him and did nothing. How in the world could you make a union soldier a hero in the city of Richmond, Virginia, the capital of of the confederacy. Jesus would have done that. Or today he might go up to Capitol Hill and tell a group of Democrats this same story and make a Republican the hero. Don't laugh, to be fair. He'd probably go then over to a group of Republicans and tell them that a Democrat is the hero. And both parties would say, how dare he come in here and make the opposition the good person? 
Jesus, do you want me to see something good in a Republican? Do you want me to see something good in a Democrat? In a Union soldier? In a gay person? I mean, this is the adult version of the Good Samaritan. This story was never about helping people on the side of the road. It was about loving people you hate. Oh man, now we're into it. Who is your Samaritan? That becomes the question. Who is my neighbor? Your neighbor is this Samaritan. Now, I just wonder, I've been doing this ministry uh, thing for 38 years. I'm the son of a United Methodist minister, so I was born in a manse. Well, not really, but you know what I mean. And I wonder if we've reduced Christianity to a child's version of the story. To be a Christian means to help the poor people. To give them a little something, to throw a frozen turkey into their living room at Thanksgiving. Maybe to go by and visit, take some toys. Whatever Christianity is, it's sort of stopping and doing something good to somebody every now and then. Maybe taking a mission trip and coming home and be grateful that, you know, you've got what you got. Volunteer up at the soup kitchen. None of that is evil in and of itself, by the way. But the church cannot be reduced to only band-aiding the wounded people in life. Or let me say it this way, the church can't be reduced to charity. We're not about charity. We never have been about charity. Jesus isn't after charity here. He is after a radical transformation of human community. He's after loving somebody you absolutely can't stand. Who is that for you? That's your neighbor. At the end of this little story Jesus makes up, he asked the lawyer another question. And this is very therapeutic, by the way, what Jesus asked. He said, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think was neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And did you notice the lawyer's answer? He said, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even say the word Samaritan. He couldn't say the Samaritan. He said, the the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, well, go and do likewise. And I can imagine that lawyer would say, you are not serious. You want me, a Jewish lawyer, the real Jewish people, you want me to go and be like a Samaritan, a thief, an imposter. And I would imagine Christ would have said to him, no, actually, I want you to embrace your Samaritan. 
with the same mercy that God has embraced you with because, now this is a kicker, we are a Samaritan to God. We're the imposters. We're the thieves. We're the ones who have mixed it up and lost it. And God sent his son to redeem us. We are the neighbor of God. The church has this word. We've got this word. Neighbor. What if the world had that word? What if we lived in this world as if every single living person were actually our neighbor? Muslim, Jews, Greeks, Hebrews, atheists. Would the world be a different place with the word neighbor? Hmm. Let us pray. Teach us, O Lord, to move from our hatred, to move from our discrimination and our prejudice and our pride, which all are like acid on our nation, and acid in this beautiful world you have created. Open our hearts to one another as you have so graciously opened your heart to us. And empower us to live as if every person is indeed our neighbor. And we pray you do this not for us, but for the sake of your kingdom. Through Christ, the risen Lord, who embraced us, we pray. Amen.